pass of his hand, and the swamp dissolves into a montage of shapes and color. And through the heart of madness moves the strangest trio ever assembled. An aeon's old wizard, a child whose courage cannot be measured in years, and a man-thing to whom time and space and courage are meaningless words. Welcome, everyone, to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. Been a while since the last one. Uh, Now, I had intended to get an episode out before the end of the year and then resume a normal schedule because we were meant to have this low-key, relaxed holiday season. Well, that turned out not to be the case. Uh, People showed up last minute, often unexpectedly, some unannounced. Uh, Family members, they were friends, even people from foreign countries. And I should point out, this was not unwelcome. It transformed a quiet, subdued Christmas and New Year into an event. An event for the ages, in fact. While this was a hell of a lot of fun, it was not conducive to a productive recording schedule. But now, everyone's gone, and with a brief time to recover, I can get back to doing this thing that I do, which is covering Adventure Into Fear, number 15, From Here to Infinity. This is the finale of sorts of a three-part storyline about the cult of Zeridna and uh, Jennifer Kale's connection to Man-Thing. Will weirdness ensue? Well, yeah. Are you not paying attention? Also, I'll talk some fantasy in the 70s, but first... There's a bit of news that needs to be addressed that is both exciting and some cause for concern. This is, of course, the announcement that R.L. Stein, the author of Goosebumps, will be writing a new Man-Thing series. Personally, I'm excited that there'll be a new Man-Thing series, but I'm a little trepidatious about some of the things Stein has said about the project. First of all, let me say that I like R.L. Stein, and I think it's actually a great thing that a somewhat high-profile author will be doing work on a minor character like Man-Thing. This will give Man-Thing exposure, one of the rare occasions where Man-Thing exposure is a good thing and won't get you arrested. But seriously, folks, (laughs) I think uh, this in and of itself will do wonders for expanding how the character is perceived. Maybe opening a door to the cinematic universe or the television universe, possibly allowing Man-Thing to have an in the way Ghost Rider does now. But maybe, and I think this would be the best thing to come of this exposure, is to get people to revisit and reread these old 70s stories that I love to talk about and obviously have an affinity for. So if this series is a gateway to that, then it will be a huge success in my mind. But I also want it to be good. I like it when things are good. I also enjoy enjoying things. And this is a character I really like, so I would like it if this was a book that I will like. That was a very convoluted sentence, but I stand by it. As I said, I have no problem with R.L. Stein. I will admit that I'm not as familiar with his work as others are. When Goosebumps was starting in the 90s, I was in college, so I was a bit aged out of the target demographic. Later, I read some of the novels with my daughter and watched some of the TV shows and reruns and whatnot, but overall, I was a bit too old to really get into it, so... I don't have the nostalgia factor that others do. But I dig what he's doing. I mean, getting kids to read by telling scary stories? Bravo! I'm on board. But as I said, I'm a little nervous. I don't want it to be dumbed down. 
Now, that, that's the wrong way to put it. I don't want it to be totally geared for younger readers. I would like it to have some level of maturity. I mean, it doesn't have to be vertigo levels of horror and gore, but it would be nice if there was a mature theme, at least in the background. The thing that Steve Gerber was able to do was to walk a very fine line of adult content and kid-friendly fantasy, and it will be interesting to see if Stein can do this as well. Also, I would like to see the integrity of the character kept intact. And this is, I, th- I think, where my biggest uh, apprehension comes in. Uh, see, in an interview with uh, the New York Times, Stein said a few interesting things. First, he said, and this is a quote, My first ambition to w- was to be a comic book artist. I started doing these little comic books in the fourth grade, Super Stooge, the dumbest hero on earth. I was terrible. I had no choice but to be a writer. Now, uh, end quote. Now, I love that quote. <laughs> he goes on to say uh, that he chose Man-Thing from a variety of characters that were offered to him, uh, but that he picked Man-Thing because he can't get over his love of swamp monsters. Again, this is great. No cause for concern here. But then he goes on to discuss what will make the series different, what the major change will be. And he says, quote, He can talk, and he's very sarcastic. I'm going to do a lot of action and a lot of great violence and make it creepy, but I'm also going to make it funny at the same time, end quote. He then goes on to explain that in the first issue, Man-Thing will be traveling to Burbank to find out why he's not in a feature film. Okay. Where to begin? Sarcastic talking. Man-Thing doesn't talk. That's one of his defining characteristics. Making him talk, that would be like making Captain America a Nazi. I mean, how stupid would that be? Yeah. And going to Burbank to find out why he's not in a film? Um, Well, first of all, he was in a movie. We just don't talk about it. And second, it's very meta. Now, being meta can be great, but it can also very easily fall into parody, and, and that's not good. Again, Steve Gerber did meta, so I'm not opposed to it, and he did weird self-referential craziness, something that'll be on display later in this very episode, but you need to be very clever to be able to pull it off well and not seem ridiculous. Now, I do think R.L. Stein has the chops to do this and do it well. Whether he does do it well remains to be seen. I guess we'll find out in March. And again, I am very excited for it. I want this to be good. I really do. So what are your thoughts? Are you excited, nervous, indifferent? Let me know in the comments on this episode or send me uh, an email to nexus at daddyelk.com. That's D-A-D-D-Y-E-L-K.com. Or on Twitter at Nexus of All. I'd be really interested to hear what others are thinking. Uh, now I'm going to take a quick break and we come back. Fantasy. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. 
Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Fantasy has always been a second-tier genre. The people who love it, love it. I admit, I fall into that category. And the people who don't love it are usually dismissive of it, sometimes insultingly so. And to be fair, it is a genre that can open itself up for negative criticism. It can be easy to mock. The tropes and the cliches can be overused. When fantasy is done poorly, it's bad embarrassingly bad. Cringe-inducing bad. I mean, barbarians in leather bikinis and foppish knights with magic swords spouting god-awful dialogue like, Verily, forsooth, I shall endeavor to make it so with mine enchanted blade. That kind of bad. So those who are dismissive of the genre and they begin throwing around negativity, this is usually the type of thing they point out. But fantasy is much more than just camp cliches. When you think about it, Every Greek play is a fantasy story, with the gods and the magic and the fate and the destiny and the releasing of the krakens. It's pure fantasy. And of course, every medieval romance is a fantasy. Knights in shining armor and quests to slay dragons, rescuing damsels in distress. And then there are things like Gulliver's Travels, Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare had ghosts and witches and prophecies of doom. I mean, classic fantasy stuff. Fantasy's been around for a long time, is what I'm saying. And even though you might be the kind of person who says, Oh, I don't read fantasy, I only read literature. Well, guess what? Much of the literature of this world is fantasy. And even if you don't know it, you probably read fantasy all the time. So basically stop being a pretentious fart. (laughs) Okay, wow. I did intend for that last bit to be a bit more articulate and express it differently, but, you know, you get my point. Now, in the 70s there was a bit of a fantasy renaissance. First of all, there was a new wave movement, mostly science fiction, but many of the same authors in the new wave wrote fantasy as well. Uh, Writers like Michael Moorcock, Ursula K. Le Guin, Roger Zelazny, J.G. Ballard, and a dozen others were taking classic tropes of the genre and putting a modern, often postmodern, spin on things. This opened up the boundaries of what fantasy can do, not only in the typical sword and sorcery kind of story, but adding urban fantasy, magical realism, horror elements, and a a wide variety of innovative ideas and interpretations. In addition to that, in the early 70s, older fantasy stories also began to get a second life. Tolkien, for example, who had decent popularity in the 50s, began to capture the imagination of the counterculture. It seems a band of scruffy, barefooted, weed-smoking nature lovers setting off to battle a faceless, benevolent evil 
resonated with the cultural, political attitudes of the time. Go figure. And this bled into music as well. Uh, prog rock bands like Yes began to use minstrel-like costumes and added lyrics that used fantasy settings and themes. Hard rock bands began incorporating fantasy imagery and lyrics as well. More of the Frazetta sexualized stuff, but still. Hell, even Led Zeppelin was talking about the darkest depths of Mordor and Gullum and the Evil One, so fantasy was beginning to weave its way into popular culture. And of course, comics was a great place for it to be expressed. Comics is really the perfect medium for it. The scale is limited only by the artist and the writer's imaginations. Any world, any creature, any concept can be depicted, and the story can be as big or as small as you want. There are no budget limitations. The more epic, the better. And again, not just the traditional fantasy stories of knights and dragons and so forth. No, no. Superhero comics, by their very nature, are fantasy stories. And in the 1970s, you begin to see more and more cosmic adventures and barren wastelands and horror monsters and flying people with energy beams coming out of their fingertips. Fantasy was beginning to flourish. And for a writer with a fertile mind like Steve Gerber, that was too big of a playground not to run around in, as we'll see today. Adventure into Fear, number 15, From Here to Infinity. Cover dated August 1973, released on or about May 1973. Steve Gerber, writer. Val Mayeric, artist. Frank McLaughlin, inker. Artie Simek, letterer. P. Goldberg, colorist, Roy Thomas, editor, cover artist, Frank Bruner. We begin with a montage of destruction. The Air Force begins dropping bombs on New York. Enraged citizens attempt to storm the UN but are beaten back by police. The Army opens fire on a crowd in front of the White House, there to demand that the war resumes. Riots and violence also ensue around the globe, Moscow, Berlin, Paris, Peking all the result of demons invading from the netherworld. Meanwhile in Florida, Joshua Kale is feeling helpless without the Tome of Zeridna when a phone call taken by his grandson Andy, who looks much older and is slightly more useless, informs them that Man-Thing has left the swamp and is running amok in town. Jennifer Kale is distraught because she, quote, loves that ugly thing. Meanwhile in town, hijinks commence as stereotypical rednecks with what looks like military-grade automatic weapons, this is of course the American South, attempt to take down Man-Thing with a flurry of bullets. This accomplishes nothing. So of course, they then attempt to run him down with their pickup truck. This accomplishes exactly what you might think, the destruction of the pickup truck. They then immediately resume the automatic weapons fire because stereotypical rednecks are nothing if not persistent. Jennifer soon arrives on the scene and feels the psychic link between the monster and herself, calling him Ted. And, once the connection is strong enough, Man-Thing falls down dead. We are told that the bullets didn't bring him down, it was a greater force. Twas beauty that killed the beast. Or something. I don't know, it's pretty vague. Man-Thing's body is hauled away unceremoniously on a tow truck as Jennifer follows. Joshua then returns home to gather the cult members in order to tell them a story. Meanwhile, Andy Kale continues to be insignificant in this story. Joshua then tells the tale of the tome. He recounts the story of a sorceress, Zeridna, the cult's namesake, who lived in Atlantis, yes, that Atlantis, and dared to prophesy that it would one day be submerged underwater. You could say she had a sinking feeling. 
She was banished from Atlantis and was forced to sail off aimlessly, where she had many more visions of the future before finally making landfall, exactly where a colony of Atlanteans had established a city years before. How convenient. She then sets up a cult, has them write down all of her visions and prophecies, and after an earthquake is promptly killed for being a witch. Her disciples escape to keep her legacy alive for, as Joshua states, 20,000 years. That, by the way, is a very long time. As he finishes his story, a demon hand reaches through a veil of smoke and pulls him into hell. I hate it when that happens. At the same time, Jennifer, who is inexplicably in a swamp crying now, is greeted by none other than the enchanter Dakamne. He assures her that the last time they met, he wasn't being a dick, and he was in fact testing them to make sure that they were strong enough to complete a very special task. Nope, not dickish at all. Dakamne then clads Jennifer in the garb of a priestess, which is apparently a cross between Red Sonia and Slave Leia, and then mystically grabs Man-Thing, who isn't really dead, just resting, and they all transport to the farthest end of the cosmos to retrieve the Tome of Zerid-Na. You know, like you do. There, inside a burning orb, lies an altar on which rests the Tome, but before they can pick it up, they are confronted by an elf named Yop and when he stops dancing, he unleashes a dark dimension where everyone they know is being crucified in a valley of fire. That, by the way, was easily one of the strangest sentences I've ever spoken aloud. They are then attacked by a creature of molten rock called Sominus. That man-thing attempts to battle, but he is hindered by Sominus's ability to drain him of moisture, because, sure, why not? As man-thing is battling, Jennifer picks up the tome and tries to read from it, and even though she can't read from it, the simple act of picking it up transports everyone back to the Florida Everglades, where the humid air allows Man-Thing to defeat Sominus because we're reaching the end of the story and sure, why not? After Sominus is defeated, the demon invasion is magically ended. The tome of Zerid-Na fades into nothingness, its task complete, and the psychic link between Jennifer and Man-Thing is severed. With all the loose ends tied up neatly, all that's left is for Man-Thing to slip sadly into the swamp. Love, beauty, joy, these have no place in a monster's dreary existence. And so the girl is already a fading memory to him. But now she can see him for what he truly is, a mindless misshapen Man-Thing no more. And softly, she weeps. Also, Andy continues to remain useless. Did it seem like there was a whole mess of story crammed in there? That's because there was. And boy, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's start with the flurry of violence at the very start of the story. So, do you remember that time in 1973 when the U.S. Air Force dropped bombs in New York City? <laughs> yeah, me neither. You'd think Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four would have said something about it. I guess it was their day off. How about the time there was a worldwide rioting? Or when the army opened fire on protesters? Yeah, I don't remember seeing that on the news either. The problem with having a shared universe is that when you depict earth-shattering events like this, there needs to be at least a nod to continuity. Somewhere along the line, some lip service needs to be paid on how it got cleaned up. And we know it is a shared universe because in the Zerid-Na visions, we clearly see Spider-Man and Captain America. So, I guess 
I guess we could just no-prize this by saying that when the tome vanished, it wiped away all the demon incursions and that stuff never really happened. There. Fixed it. Also, and I'm skipping ahead here, but Atlantis. I'm going to assume this is the same Atlantis that Namor is the king of. I didn't realize that it sank 20,000 years ago, but I suppose it's possible. That's quite a long history, and you'd think Namor would talk about that more often. I mean, a society that's been around for 20,000 years is pretty impressive, right? I also assume it's possible that I'm putting too much thought into this and I should just move on. Okay, so this story basically starts when the phone rings. So when Andy answers the phone, which is all he pretty much does in the story, by the way. Oh, as an aside, I found it hilarious that as soon as the phone rang, Andy's immediate reaction is, uh-oh, more bad news. That was his default reaction when the phone rang. He just assumed it's bad news. No clue who's on the line, by the way. Just assumes it's bad news. And to be fair, he's right, but come on, Andy. Show some optimism, buddy. So Andy answers the phone, and it is bad news, and they head off to town where Man-Thing is possessed by demons and being attacked by rednecks. Uh, really a toss-up as to which is worse. And it's rednecks with guns that are defending the town. No police, no sheriff, just hicks with weapons. And there are four of them, only two get named, Orville and George. And even though it's not stated, I'm going to assume the other ones are named uh, Cletus and Cooter. That seems about right with the level of stereotypes going on here. And then there's the reestablishment of the psychic link that causes Man-Thing to die. I should mention I'm doing air quotes in front of the microphone. Probably doesn't translate well to an audio medium. And, and then there's this whole bit that's vague and weird. Here, let me just read this one part uh, to, to see if I could explain what I mean. Uh, as Jennifer is running towards Man-Thing to get the rednecks to stop shooting, she says, I have to stop them. What they're doing is, it's, oh, Ted, don't say that. It then explains in the narration that Man-Thing was once Ted Salas, and Jennifer mentioned that he was once a beautiful man, but this seems completely out of the blue. It'd be fine if they tied it to a later plot point, but they do not. Also, what did Ted say? Inquiring minds want to know. This is just one in a long list of things that are confused and rushed in this issue. But let's move on for the moment. Next, uh, Man-Thing is hauled away, strapped to a tow truck. This is a minor detail, but I like it. I mean, how else would you get rid of a dead swamp monster in the middle of the street? Tow truck, of course. And then we switch to Joshua, who tells the tale of Zerid-Na. Uh, he tells it to the cultists, the cult of Zerid-Na, mind you. You would think that a cult devoted to Zerid-Na would be fully versed in this particular story, but okay, we need exposition. <laughs> I'll allow it. This part is a complete mishmash of fantasy tropes. I mean, first of all, Atlantis, uh, and they sail away in what are obviously Viking boats wearing horned helmets. Uh, well, not Zerid-Na herself. She, you know, she's wearing one of the most impractical outfits ever designed. Uh, it's metal and has pointy bits where a pointy bit should not be. Uh, though to be fair, she is wearing pants, as opposed to Jennifer, who will later wear the same outfit without pants, making the impractical impracticaler. <laughs> it's a hard word to say. And of course, uh, she's killed for being a witch. Now, the text, the text says that 
she was in her temple for years, building a devoted following. Uh, but after one earthquake, the townsfolk rush in and massacre and burn the place. Uh, you'd think that maybe they would have given her the benefit of the doubt, or... <laughs> nah, who am I kidding? If 2016 taught me anything, it's that the masses will burn the place down with no thought of the future. So, yeah, that part seems legit. Okay, and now, at this point, the story goes completely bonkers. I know, right? This is where it goes off the rails. Who, who would have guessed? Uh, we get the return of Dakame, who first garbs Jennifer in the metal and pointy bits, sans pants. He then brings Man-Thing back from the dead with a literal... Uh, hand wave. We go through some Ditko-esque imagery to get to a throne room churchy place that is guarded by a tiny little elf man named Yop, who causes a dark dimension to open when he stops dancing. And wait, what? <laughs> All of this happens in two pages, by the way. Two pages. One of the brilliant things here, and by brilliant I mean deeply silly, is uh, in one panel we have Jennifer reaching for the tome and the narration says, and then something happened. While in the next panel, the tiny elf man Yop jumps on the book. But the text does not trust you to be able to use your context and visual clues to know that the something happened was in fact the elf man jumping on the book. No, no, no. To remove all doubt, a jagged bubble with an arrow pointing to the tiny elf man and the word this inside of it, followed by not one, but two exclamation points inserted to help the reader through this confusing moment. Bronze Age comics, man. Gotta love them. Then comes a dark domain and crucifixions and uh, a quick battle with a lava monster, then tome ex machina, story comes to a rather abrupt conclusion, and the end. This is a, this is a very dense story. Uh, there's a whole heck of a lot going on, as I said. Seriously, if this story were being told today, it would be, what, 6 to 12 issues. Easy. And some of that has to do with the time it was written. I mean, Silver and Bronze Age comics were notoriously jam-packed and wordy. I mean, that's just the style of the time. Regardless, this is extremely rushed, even by the standards of the day. It seems to me, and... I don't know if this is true, I'm just speculating, but it seems to me as if the plotline was being rushed through just to get it over with. Uh, the next few issues are told at a much slower pace, they're still Bronze Age comics, uh, wordy but not as frantic. And that's the word, that's the word I need to use, frantic. This story is just racing to the end, plot point, plot point, plot point, done. Uh, and there are several things, like, like the Ted Salas drop mentioned earlier that to me indicate that there might have been a a different direction this story was going, a direction that was dropped or forgotten. I don't know. Like I said, I'm just speculating. There's just so much here that's just glossed over and quickly rushed through. Well, and maybe this is just an example of trying to cram too many ideas into one story. Uh, many stories at this time were guilty of this. Uh, and there are some great ideas here, but none of them are allowed to breathe. And that frantic pace just plows over them to your left, shaking your head, thinking, the hell was that? I do have an appreciation of this for the, uh, for the crazy, over-the-top nature of the story, but in the end, it's just too much. It's too fast. And as Gerber's writing gets better, this craziness becomes better realized. There's a, a poignancy, a pathos added to the bizarre nature of the story so that it's not just 
crazy for craziness sake, but simply an added dimension, a detail that is part of a greater whole. Basically, this is fun, but it gets better. I'll be right back after this. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to introduce you to a brand new podcast all about the craft and the process of writing. It's called Word After Word, and each month I'll be joined by Professor David Hicks to discuss the skills and methods needed to be a great writer. Using examples from novels, short stories, and poetry, as well as TV and film, we'll dissect passages, beautiful scenes, and characters, and investigate the process writers have employed in order to create their great work. Along the way, we'll be joined by special guests, best-selling authors, poets, as well as up-and-coming writers to get their advice and learn the habits that make them successful at what they do. So join us, Paul Matthew Carr and David Hicks, for Word After Word, a podcast on writing. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us online at wordafterwordpodcast.com. All right, yet another episode is in the books. We will begin a series of uh, one-off stories with Adventure into Fear number 16, Cry of the Native, next time. And while the next few issues will be standalones, they do introduce some characters that will be recurring, that will bleed into other stories and other titles, for that matter. Also, there's only, what, four more issues of Adventure into Fear before Man-Thing gets his own book? And that's when the whole thing starts cranking into high gear. Uh, So you think this story was weird? Just wait. So, uh, that just leaves me to say, you've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. If you'd like to contact the show and I think that you should, you can email the program at nexus at or contact us on Twitter at Nexus of All, or visit the show online at nexusofallrealities.com where comments can be left on individual episodes. The Nexus of All Realities can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head on over and leave a review. I'll be your best friend if you do. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. All right, thanks for listening, everybody, and I will see you next time. Bye.